0: Tech Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 595 for the 3rd of June. 2018. This week, if you're thinking about buying a new camera, it is important to consider more than just megapixels. Even low-end cameras these days have plenty of pixels, so let's look at one other specification that's important to know. In short circuits, have you rebooted your router yet? A significant security problem could allow hackers, believed to be Russians, to gain access to it. A couple of companies are talking about creating driverless vehicles for deliveries. States are expected to stampede into a vacuum created by a Supreme Court ruling that allows them to permit online sports betting. And in spare parts, only on the website, you can read the FBI's full statement about router security. Alien Skin, the creator of many plugins for Photoshop, has been around for 25 years now and is offering some attractive sale prices but only for a few days, and automation eliminates some jobs, may create others. For digital cameras, quality is about more than just megapixels. Digital sensors are complex devices, but camera manufacturers learned long ago that camera buyers equate more pixels with better quality. To some extent, that's true. But mostly, it's not. In the early days, cameras produced images that were perhaps 640 pixels by 480 pixels. A camera with more pixels, 1024 by 768, for example, would certainly create a better picture. But once cameras advanced beyond about 3,000 pixels by 2,400 pixels, which would be about 7.2 megapixels, The actual pixel count became irrelevant. Why did I select 3000 by 2400? Well, because that's sufficient to produce an 8 by 10 print at 300 dots per inch. Most people share images on the screen these days, and that's also sufficient, more than sufficient, for a rich textured detailed image even on a large screen. Even basic low-end point-and-shoot cameras today offer at least 10 megapixels, and some cameras that are intended for pros are in the 50-megapixel range, or even more. These cameras produce sufficient visual information to allow greater enlargement and cropping. Now, a sensor's dynamic range is arguably more important than the number of pixels that a sensor has, but I'm going to leave that topic for another time. While we hear a lot about needing 300 dots per inch for acceptable photographs, that isn't always the case either. An acceptable wall size enlargement, say 36 inches by 24 inches, can be made from a digital image that's only 2560 pixels by 1920 pixels. I know because I've done it. If you do the math, you'll see that this is the equivalent of just 71 dots per inch on paper, 71, not 300. The print is acceptable because a wall-sized print will be viewed on the wall. Closer viewing distances require higher resolution printing. To take this to what may seem like absurd extremes, consider highway billboards. These are typically viewed from at least 50 feet away, and the resolution is usually 12 dots per inch or less, sometimes a lot less, sometimes all the way down to one dot per inch. Just about any digital camera sold today will have more than enough pixels, but there are some other things to be concerned with. One of those is the physical size of the sensor, and that's what we're going to look at today. Sensors come in a variety of sizes. The largest measures about 50 millimeters by 40 millimeters and the smallest ones are down around 4.5 millimeters by 3.5 millimeters. It is possible to buy a 20 megapixel camera with a 5 by 4 millimeter sensor, a 36 by 24 millimeter sensor, or a 50 millimeter by 40 millimeter sensor. The same number of pixels, but a different sensor size. So what's the difference? The obvious answer is that the pixels, they're made up of what are called photosites, on the smaller sensor will be smaller than those on the larger sensor. So what difference does that make? Well understanding that requires some knowledge of the incredibly complex technology used. A pixel, as I said, actually consists of four photo sites, one for red, one for blue, two for green. Our eyes are more sensitive to green, that's why most of today's sensors, most but not all, use that pattern. Without getting too far into the weeds, let's just say that smaller sensors with the same number of pixels as a larger sensor won't produce as good an image. When the photo sites are smaller, noise increases because not as much light reaches the sensor. So that suggests that larger sensors are always better than smaller sensors. Hold it, not so fast though. The two most common sensor sizes for digital SLR cameras are what are called full-frame and cropped sensor. Full-frame sensors are the size of 35mm film, 36mm by 24mm. And yes, 36mm is correct for 35mm film. Trust me. The other most common size is cropped or APS-C These sensors are either 24mm by 16mm on Nikon, Sony, and Pentax cameras, or 22mm by 15mm on Canon cameras. When you're choosing between full-frame and APS-C, larger isn't always better. The smaller APS-C sensors will have more digital noise than full-frame sensors, but the difference will be so small that it'll be visible only in laboratory tests. Too many amateur photographers buy cropped sensor cameras because they generally cost less, and then they look forward to the day when they can trade in those cameras for a full-frame sensor. The results, when they get to a full-frame camera, are not always what they expected. First, any lens that has been designed for a cropped sensor camera will not work properly on a full-frame camera. It's just physics, not some nefarious plot by the manufacturers. But more important is the fact that a full sensor has a different view. Here's a real-life example. I own a Canon digital SLR with a cropped sensor. Canon's APS-C sensor means that a 50mm lens will act like an 80mm lens on a film or a full-frame digital SLR. Sometimes this is referred to as a magnification factor. That's not really what it is, but we'll go with that. The cropped sensor sees only part of the light that the lens captures, the central part. That's great if you're a photographer with a telephoto eye. That's a good description of me, by the way. Not so good, though, if your vision tends to be more wide-angle. I have a Sigma 150mm to 600mm zoom lens. I use it at zoos and places like the wilds where I want to get close pictures of an animal. It goes on my APS-C camera. And so it gives me the equivalent of a 240mm to 960mm zoom on a 35mm full frame camera. That's a plus for the times when I want to use a longer lens. On the other hand, I have a Sigma 10 to 20mm lens that would be extremely wide on a film camera or a full frame digital camera. On my cropped sensor camera though, it is the equivalent of 16 to 32mm wide but not as wide as i'd expect on a film camera my point here is that the sensor needs to be matched to your eye camera and lens manufacturers talk about normal lenses maybe you're wondering what they mean by normal well that's subjective at best a normal lens is one that reproduces a field of view that appears natural to a human observer again more subjectivity neither a wide-angle nor telephoto. If you'd like to explore that further, Wikipedia has a very long article on the subject. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Also this week, you'll find a chart that shows most of the common sensor sizes, all the way from the tiniest that you'll find in mobile phones, all the way up to sheet film. Nobody makes sensors 4 by 5 inches. But I thought I'd include that just because once a long time ago, Press photographers used four by five sheet film cameras. A normal lens on a camera like that would be about 150 millimeters. Then smaller cameras came along. Roll film cameras were available in several sizes, seven centimeters by six, six centimeters square, and six centimeters by four point five centimeters. The normal lens on those cameras about eighty millimeters. For 35mm full-frame film cameras, the normal lens was about 50mm. For today's APS-C digital SLR cameras, normal is around 36mm. Now, of course, you don't have much choice about sensor sizes in phones. You get what you get. But if you're in the market for a digital camera, you have five primary choices. 1-inch, micro four-thirds, APS-C two slightly different options there, and full frame. When you examine the chart on the TechBinder Worldwide website, you may wonder about some of the sensor sizes shown there. They're shown as one over some number. These goofy measurements, and that's all I can call them, goofy, date back to old television tube sizes that refer to vacuum tubes used in early television cameras. These numbers go all the way back to the 50s and early 60s. The more important numbers, though, are the height, width, and area values that show the actual size of the sensor. It's clear that a camera with a larger sensor will produce a better image because it gathers more light, but it will require larger, heavier lenses, and it's going to cost more. Today, even smartphones and tablets can provide sufficient detail. An iPad Pro comes with two cameras, the back camera is a 12 megapixel device, the front camera 7 megapixels, but instead of a sensor with an 860 square millimeter area, as you'd find in a full frame digital camera, it's just 16 square millimeters. 16 compared to 860. So although theoretically a larger sensor is a better sensor, that doesn't always hold up in practice. For those who need to take photographs in dark locations that require extremely high ISO settings, the larger sensor will provide images with less digital noise. So the bottom line is there is no one-size-fits-all solution in photography. You of course don't have a choice of sensor sizes in tablets or smartphones. But advanced point-and-shoot cameras, mirrorless cameras, and digital SLR cameras do provide opportunities to choose among the various trade-offs. If you want a small camera, most are going to have small sensors. Some advanced point-and-shoot cameras have APS-C sensors. A few, a very tiny few, have full-frame sensors. If you want the least possible noise, a full-frame sensor might be the right choice, but at a much higher price and with the need to buy more expensive lenses. If you prefer telephoto photography, you definitely want to take a look at cropped sensor cameras because they give you a bonus on lens length. And a quick separate but somewhat related question. Quite a few of the recent podcasts have dealt with digital photography. It is one of my favorite subjects, and I've heard from listeners that they enjoy these reports because what used to be a highly specialized pursuit is now acceptable to anyone with even a modest camera and a computer. But Is it too much? Is there too much here about photography? Opinions, suggestions, recommendations always welcome. That's why the website has a contact page. Check out www.techbiter.com. Go to the contact page. Let me know what you think. short circuits, have you rebooted your router recently? You've probably seen recommendations to reboot your router and to update it to the most recent firmware to eliminate a security issue. More than a dozen routers are known to be vulnerable, but there are questions about whether the list includes all the routers with vulnerabilities. In fact, it probably does not. As a result, the safe course would be to reboot your router whether it's on the list shown on the TechBinder Worldwide website or not. Updating the firmware is also a good idea, but it might not always be feasible. I have a Netgear R7000 router. This is a vulnerable router, but I can't upgrade the router's firmware because doing so renders the network-attached storage drive inoperable. The malware appears to have been developed in Russia, by the way, and you can see the FBI's full statement at the top of this week's spare parts on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Rebooting the router disables some of the malware. It's a three-component piece of malware, and rebooting disables two of the components. It will still leave one component in place. That component could be used to reinstall the parts that are eliminated by a reboot. So a better solution, if you're comfortable with the process of setting up the router, involves performing a full system reset. With most routers, that involves using a sharp object like a paperclip clip to press a reset switch. If you do this, you will need to perform a full setup, so write down all your settings first. And when you set the router up again, at the very least, make sure you don't use the default password. Most routers have a default user of admin and a default password of password and the router does not force the user to change it. That is one thing you should definitely change. Also, if you have enabled remote administration, disable it. Most routers have that turned off by default. Security firm Talos has a detailed report on its website, and you'll find a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Through the news releases that I received this week, I spotted one that described an agreement between a couple of companies to establish a project and implementation plan to provide an autonomous vehicle platform for one of the companies focused on a delivery system with driverless cars. And I wondered, has anyone thought that through? In just the past four months, one of the companies has raised more than $23 million in an initial coin offering, an ICO. That's a recently emerged concept of crowdfunding projects in the cryptocurrency and blockchain industries. The companies plan to operate what they call a fleet of blockchain-operated driverless vehicles controlled by artificial intelligence, starting in Las Vegas and expanding eventually to Miami. And I'm sure they hope then to the rest of the country. The news release says that the driverless cars will proceed to a delivery location and then notify users via a text message. The recipient's identification will be verified and the car will unlock so the package can be delivered. Well, that scheme raises a bunch of questions. Here are just a few. What if the recipient isn't at the delivery location? Will the car wait for the person to arrive or continue on to some other delivery location and come back later? Assuming the car makes more than one delivery per trip, and you'd have to think that it would, what's to keep one person from collecting another person's package? Okay, here I'm assuming there will be lockers or something like that inside the vehicle. How is this better than using the post office, UPS, FedEx, or a local courier who will take the package right up to the recipient's door? Using a car or even a small van would limit the size of packages and the number of deliveries that could be handled in a single trip. That seemingly would increase the price per delivery. Will users be willing to pay for that service? Some offices, particularly those in suburban areas, may be distant from the parking lot, quite a walk in some cases, and might not have delivery docks. Will employees of companies receiving packages from these autonomous vehicles be willing to walk out to the car and carry the package or packages back into the office? Well, that's my short list. So I wonder, have the developers pondered these questions and others? The U.S. Supreme Court ruled recently that a federal ban on state-sanctioned sports betting is unconstitutional. The 6-3 ruling eliminated a federal ban on sports betting, so now any state can permit it. The Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, PASPA, had made it illegal for a state to allow sports betting. The immediate change will be the establishment of betting sites in New Jersey, but other states will certainly follow. Individual states will determine whether to allow betting on sports. The New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement expects to have regulations approved by fall, and they say gambling operations should be live before the end of the year. Prior to the ruling, sports betting was legal only in Nevada. DraftKings, which runs a fantasy sports mobile platform used by nearly 10 million online customers, plans to expand into online betting. The company has been preparing since 2017 to launch a sports betting platform for mobile devices and is currently working with state regulatory officials to apply for operating licenses in those states that have already passed legislation authorizing sports betting. Fortunately, nobody had to authorize spare parts, but you'll find it only on the website. This week, you can read the FBI's full statement on router security, Alien Skin, the creator of many plugins for Photoshop, has been around for 25 years now and is offering some attractive sale prices, but only for a few days. And automation eliminates some jobs, but does it create others? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.